You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Hello, good morning. Good morning. So welcome everyone and good morning. I'm Julica Herman de la Fuente. I'm the Director of Liberation and Transformation Ministries here at First Universalist. And we're so glad you are here with us today, whether live right now and checking in on the chat. Thank you for saying where you're coming in from, or maybe you're watching this later on YouTube and that is also wonderful. I do have a few specific announcements. Um, Post-worship gathering opportunities. Today there will, no be, uh, there will not be an All Identities Fellowship Hour because we're starting our summer schedule. So the All Identities Fellowship Hour will meet the second and the fourth Sundays of every month in the summer, which means that we look forward to gathering once again on June 13th. The BIPOC coffee hour will meet one final time today. And then for the summer, it will be a breakout room in the All Identities Fellowship Hour because we don't have the staffing for it over the summer. Um, and BIPOC beloveds, please look for an email from myself, Arif and Karen with an invitation to um, have you join us in imagining and recreating a BIPOC Fellowship Hour in the fall. There'll be an email in your inbox soon. We also want to invite members to please register for and attend the annual meeting on Zoom and friends to watch the live stream on YouTube Live on June 6th at 11.30. I wanna remind you that we are voting on the racial justice resolution and you will find a link in the virtual order of service today. You will also receive an opportunity to participate in a straw poll later today this afternoon or evening, we're going to send an email to you and that will also give you an opportunity to submit questions or comments regarding the resolution to the board. So please look to your email later today or early tomorrow morning for that link. Next Sunday, June 6th is our annual flower communion worship. We're asking members and friends to share photos of themselves with flowers to be included in a photo slideshow that will play during the service. Please take your photo with a horizontal, with the phone on horizontal and submit one high resolution image to communications at firstuniv.org no later than this Tuesday, June 1st. And also that afternoon on June 6th, please join us for a final good goodbye to Reverend Justin in person and outside right on the front steps of the church building from 4 to 6 p.m. Again, that's next Sunday, June 6th. It's a very busy Sunday next, next Sunday. So as we begin our worship service, let's take some smooth breaths together. Let's root into the ground. Let's feel the connection to earth, to life, to each other. I invite you to let go of the things that were before. I invite you to let go of the things that are coming next. I invite you to be here now. And I invite you to light your chalices in your homes or in your heart, along with Beth, William, and Aria. Let us begin. 
please join me in saying the words for lighting our chalice. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. So sweet, so sweet. All right, so for our time for all ages, I actually would like to have a conversation with you in the chat. So if you could start by saying hi in the chat, I will know that you are with me and that will help. And uh, young people in our church, I invite you to have your parents be your typers. So get them ready to type. Hi, there you are. Thank you so much. All right. So I would like for you to begin by sharing in the chat, what is your favorite imaginary world? Maybe it's a movie, maybe it's a book, maybe like Hannah, it's just a world that you can imagine where people can fly and have clear communication, which I super loved. What is your favorite imaginary world? Star Wars, definitely, Never Ending Story, Wonder Woman, Narnia, yes. The Land of the Meepers. I don't know the Land of the Meepers. I need to check this out. The World in Ghostbusters, Three Pines, The World of Your Dreams. Yes, yes. I love that. The Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. Star Trek, Any World on a Lake. Wonderful, thank you. Oh, the Hundred Acre Woods, that's so sweet. I would like to live there too. Earthsea, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, three-year-old typing. I love your imaginary world, fantastic. <laughs> Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Labyrinth, Pern and McCaffrey's Pern, yeah. Yeah, oh, so good, thank you. Sesame Street. All right, well, so, now, I want to ask you some questions, um, youth and children of the church, and I want your grown-ups to help out with um, writing the answers. I have been leading some abolition circles in church recently, and one of the videos has Adrian Marie Brown, who's a really good teacher, talking about how we need to think about justice differently, because right now we think of justice as punitive, as being punished. And she talks about how even way at the beginning of our childhood, the way that we are taught that we have done something wrong is because we get separated. We get separated from the classroom or from our friends and we get sent to the school resource officer or to the principal's office. And so what we need to do in order to find a different way to relate to justice is to use our imagination. We need to use our imagination to find other ways to deal with folks when we're having a problem. So I would like to ask you in the chat to tell me when you imagine a different way of dealing with someone who is not behaving well in the classroom at school. Someone is just not cooperating, doesn't wanna listen, doesn't wanna be still, whatever's going on. What do you think from an imaginary world perspective would be something that we could do to help that person and to help the classroom in that moment? And I want you to think of like really silly solutions, really kind solutions, 
really weird solutions, I want you to think what would they do in your favorite imaginary world? So giving them a hug, yeah. A tickle machine. <laughs> I love a tickle machine. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> Give them some time to get their wiggles out and talk whatever is what, what what's bothering with them. Yeah. Yeah. I I read a post recently on Facebook where the teacher stopped the conversation to let some people talk about a recent shooting and they were struggling. And so they didn't talk about the lesson, they talked about their feelings. They stopped and just paid attention to what was happening in the classroom. A more inappropriate alternative that is more fun. Yeah, uh-huh. Snacks always help, I completely agree. Breathing, speaking to them respectfully. A puppy or a kitten or a lamb appears for them to play with or cuddle until they feel better. Oh my God, yes, you need a puppy. Here, you're having a bad moment. Here's a wiggly puppy that's gonna make you feel loved. I could totally see that helping me if I was really, really upset. And uh, Denise is sharing how you sat down with a little boy and his mom and singing and he slowed down and just stared because you were singing. That's really interesting. Yeah, yoga breathing, right. Nice, excellent, excellent. So do you remember a few weeks ago, Lauren told a story about the sandbox and her son and how uh, she watched uh, another kid destroy someone's sand bridge and how the teacher handled that conversation and helped them talk to each other and feel their feelings. So if you didn't, it was a really good one. You wanna go back and listen to, the, to that sermon, but I mean, to that service. But um, what I would like to ask you now is, when you are the one that made a mistake, how would you like to be brought back into relationship? When you've done something wrong with your friends, what helps you come back and be able to say you're sorry or make something better? I'm looking, I'm looking to the chat. Time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Flowers. Educating yourself. So finding out what what you did wrong and why, and then doing it differently next time, sure. Taking a walk, making crafts, making something with your hands, taking responsibility, asking, would you be open to talking? Saying you're sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Minecraft. I wonder how Minecraft would help. An agreement, alone time, sensible mediation, Massage, maybe Minecraft would help to like calm down. I can see that working, not necessarily for <laughs> 400 warnings. <laughs> it would be helpful to have 400 warnings, I agree. <laughs> it helps to know that the person cares about me and our relationship is open enough to talk and to try to repair things. Trusting and unconditional love, having an apology be accepted, work towards change. 
I know you didn't mean to be hurtful, being told that I'm not bad, singing a favorite song, collaborative world building on Minecraft, of course, yes. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, friends. Thank you for joining me in this conversation about how can our imaginations help us create a different way of relating to justice. I invite you to keep working on, our, on your imagination and our collective imagination every day. Because the more we are able to think about what else is possible right now, what else could we be doing, the more we will be able to create the beloved community that we all want to live in. So thank you. Thank you so much. Next, we have a lovely piece of music, Gather the Spirit. I'm going to invite us all to have this song begin our time of prayer. So I invite you to sing in your homes or in your cars or wherever you're joining us and use this beautiful hymn to draw closer to each other through the magic of the internet. Let's sing with Amy and Franco. Celebrate 
Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Franco. And thank you, church. As we continue in this prayerful space, and before I share joys and sorrows in our community, today I want to share a prayer from my colleague and friend, the Reverend Kristen Grassel Schmidt. She wrote this prayer for today and invited other ministers to share it as well. She, she put it on Facebook in one of the groups I'm in, and I was very moved by her words, and I wanted to share them with you. This is Kristen's prayer. Spirit of life, this Memorial Day weekend, we hold in reverent memory all those whose lives have been cut short while serving in the armed forces. We pause to honor their service, whether they signed up willingly or were drafted, whether they agreed with what they were fighting for or not. We pause today to lift up their families and friends, neighborhoods and communities that will never be the same because they are gone. We pause also to pray for those who are serving today, for their safety and for this country to honor their service with good pay and services and benefits. We pause today to lift up the many who have returned home from battle bearing physical and emotional scars and to remember the many who leave the battlefield only for that battlefield, never to leave them. We pause in the midst of busy daily lives to gather in worship. This thing we do each week, which binds us together, expands our horizons, helps us remember our connection to all that is, and draws our focus to the things of deepest worth in our lives and our world. We pray not because prayer is magic that defies the laws of the universe, not because we all have the same beliefs about prayer or who or what we're praying to, but because prayer is a Unitarian Universalist practice that can change our hearts, our receptivity to one another, and the love and justice at work all around us. And so in our time of worship together, we pray for peace. In this precious time together, we form a guiding vision of a world where we no longer ask people to sacrifice their bodies in order to manage international conflict. Many of us yearn for peace. Our world is thirsty for peace. And yet, as it has been said, there is no real peace without justice. Too often, peace is the word we use when what we really mean is a willingness to ignore a history of wrongs so we don't have to face the truth and all the ways that truth will ask us to change. But real peace is deeper than that. It means more than a momentary suspension of hard conversation for the sake of political posturing. Peace is more profound than the silent treatment, the tension that exists when it's too hard to engage the real issues. Real peace is deeper than any lull between shouting matches or battles or bombardments. Real peace, the peace that doesn't pass our understanding, can flower only where justice has deep roots. This Memorial Day weekend, we pray for the courage and commitment to do what it takes to nurture the roots of justice in our own lives, in our own small corners of the world. 
We pray for the patience to stick with them, even when it's all in vain. The assurance that our efforts matter, that they are part of a larger whole. May the truth that sings its own song in each of our hearts, the gratitude that leads us to share our abundance with others, the force that topples every tyrant, the power that fills the hungry with good things be in us and with us now and forever. May it be so, and may we make it so. Amen. Thank you, Kristen, for that prayer and for allowing us to share it across the country. And thank you, Church, for joining me and for amplifying that energy. Spirit of life, come unto me. kind of Memorial Day here in the Twin Cities this year. A year ago, as we all know, George Floyd was murdered at 38th in Chicago when Officer Derek Chauvin chose to put his knee on his neck for more than nine minutes as George Floyd cried for his mother and pleaded for his life. We watched him take his last breaths on the internet. Darnella Frazier's bystander video, both horrifying and tragically familiar. At this point, we have muscle memory of all the other times these traumatic videos of police killing Black people have gone viral. The theft of Black life, the absolute disregard for the precious humanity of Black people. George Floyd, we speak your name again today a year after your death sparked a worldwide uprising. We know you rest in power. May you also rest in peace. 
That day changed the world. The outpouring of rage and grief spilling into the streets, the bitter irony of militarized cops and the National Guard tear gassing and firing rubber bullets against people protesting the stolen breath, the stolen life of George Floyd. Then the calculated infiltration of white supremacists and Blue Lives Matter ideologues capitalizing on that open, bleeding pain of our community. The eyes of the world on our protesting, our organizing, our declaration that we would not, could not go back to normal. Y'all, I love this city. I love the fierce, brilliant, fearless organizers who are my movement family, who have built on the lessons of generations. The ones who occupied the fourth precinct and surrounded the governor's mansion and built organizations like Black Visions and Reclaim the Block and MPD 150 that have been organizing for years and were ready to move with laser-like focus the moment that door opened up. Because of that long-term strategic organizing, last year, nine Minneapolis city council members stood on a stage in Powderhorn Park and committed to dismantling the Minneapolis Police Department. Phrases like prison industrial complex and defund the police and abolition now suddenly became household words across the country and the world. For the first time, there was a viable, popular conversation about the call to build a world without policing and prisons. I wanna pause here and invite you to do a quick scan of your body after I just said those words, defund, abolition, police. What are you feeling physically right now? Is your heart beating a little faster or your stomach nodding up? Are your fists or your shoulders or your neck clenching or maybe there's a reaching, a yearning, a stretching in your belly? Whatever you're experiencing, just breathe into it. Feel it. Pay attention to what your body is telling you. When I first started engaging in real grappling with the concepts of police and prison abolition, my own physical experience was like stepping right up on the edge of a high place. Like the first time I visited the Grand Canyon and I leaned over one of those overlooks, my stomach lurched and my balance was off kilter and my brain was screaming, get back, get back. Even though I knew rationally that I was still standing on solid ground. Our brains are wired to send us physical signals that keep us from making decisions that could get us hurt or killed. And over the course of our lives, we are trained, sometimes through experience, sometimes through instruction, in what is dangerous and what is safe. Now, in the US, regardless of your race or your gender or your class, every single one of us has been indoctrinated to equate police and prisons with safety and order. As abolitionist organizer Mariam Kaba puts it, cop shows, children's books, cartoons, comic books, Lego toys, officer-friendly programs in schools, all condition us into being unable to imagine a world without police. Cops are lionized in monuments, in memorials and highway signs. Cops are portrayed as heroic. We're told that they are the bulwark between order and complete chaos. Now, if you are a person who is not white or straight or cisgender or housed or able-bodied or neurotypical, you've almost certainly 
also had personal experience with police and prisons that contradict that narrative. As Kaba says, if you want to maintain a white supremacist, cis-heteropatriarchal capitalist state, then particular groups have to be targeted, controlled, contained. It's no wonder that BIPOC, queer and trans, houseless, disabled, mentally ill people experience painful cognitive dissonance when confronted again and again with the fact that the same justice system that the national mythology insists is there to protect and serve the good people and hold the bad ones to account, it's actually set up to control, to criminalize, to disappear entire communities of people. But for the rest of us, folks like me, because Officer Friendly visited our kindergarten classroom or the police helped us when our car broke down and we love Captain Benson on Law and Order SVU, and because the Nextdoor app is a rabbit hole of fear and crime, our brains are trained to believe that police are the only way we can stay safe, that prisons are the only solution for keeping bad people from hurting us and the ones we love. So when we encounter ideas like defund the police or abolish the prison industrial complex, we've been preconditioned to react like there is a real threat to our safety. That lizard brain amygdala gives us the flight, fight, or freeze response. And it feels like we are at the edge of that chasm and we've got a backup right now where we will fall to our death. I remember sometime in my 20s, I was sitting on my younger brother's front porch, his best friend was there, and we started talking about one of the recent travesties committed by police, and I don't even remember which at this point. And Lex, my brother, and Isaac, his friend, started talking about abolition. Now, these two beloved souls are people whom I deeply respect, and I didn't want to appear not woke enough, but I was having that lizard brain response, right? I knew that policing and, and prisons are inherently racist and violent and that radical change is definitely needed, but to get rid of them entirely? So I asked the question that every single person who begins to grapple with abolition asks, what about the serial killers and the active shooters and the rapists? Now, I know all these years later that there are many, many compelling and very specific answers to that question. Um, I invite you all to check out the list of resources that I put in our virtual order of service this week to see some of them. But that day, my brother just said to me, look, we've been trained to lead with that question, but it's the wrong frame. Abolition doesn't ask, what are we gonna tear down? And what kind of gaps will be left when we do? Abolition asks, what do we need to build to create the world we wanna live in? So I'm not here today to convince you that the systems of policing and prisons don't really keep us safe. They can't be reformed because they are the poisoned fruit of the tree of chattel slavery and Jim Crow and all the other manifestations of white supremacy in the US. Most of you already know that. And if you're interested in digging deeper, I've again listed a bunch of resources in today's order of service. But I'm here to talk about the spiritual work that we are called to do when we begin to suspect those lizard brain instincts might be wrong. That we've been manipulated into pledging allegiance to a system that is fundamentally violent and untrustworthy while it's pretending to be the source of justice 
and righteousness and safety. What we do when we have been so well indoctrinated that we literally cannot imagine a world in which we didn't depend on police and prisons to give us the illusion of safety. Beloveds, our faith says that we have to try. Our universalist forebears had this radical notion that any God worthy of allegiance is too good and too loving to predestine anyone to misery in this life or abandon them to eternal punishment in the next. That's the root of our belief in the inherent worth and dignity of all people. In the words of my friend and colleague, the Reverend Jason Lydon, who is a, a humanist minister, who's one of the leading abolitionists in our faith tradition today, he says, if I don't believe God would punish people after death and send them to hell because God is so loving and because punishment is not salvific, then why would I think punishment would be salvific on earth? So in spite of how hard it is for most of us to imagine this world in which every single person is safe and well-resourced, a world where harm is both less inevitable and more transformatively addressed when it happens. That's a spiritual project to which we are being called. And thankfully we are not alone in the practice or the struggle. <clears throat> so it's no coincidence that the movement to abolish the prison industrial complex has long been led by black queer women, the people whose communities have been most directly harmed, right? Those queer black women are not just critiquing what is, but imagining and actively building something more liberatory. To quote abolitionist movement elder Ruth Wilson Gilmore, abolition is about presence, not absence. It's about building life-affirming institutions. Even imagining what that might look like is hard, right? But when I hit the bottom of the dry well, there is often a black feminist vision out there that fills me right back up. Not because black feminism was created for me, but because black feminism centers the joyful liberatory vision of a world in which all black women are truly free. And it turns out that in that world, the rest of us are necessarily free too. So I wanna share one of these pieces with you. In a minute, you'll see local poet Janauda Petrus reading her poem, Could We Please Give the Police Departments to the Grandmothers? She originally wrote this piece after Michael Brown's murder in 2016. And then last year, she recorded this reading of it as a gift for us after George Floyd was killed. So as you listen to Ms. Petrus read, I wanna invite you again to really pay attention to your body. Notice how your muscles feel, how your heart is beating and how your breath is moving, what you feel in your stomach. Could we please give the police departments to the grandmothers? Could we please give the police departments to the grandmothers, give them the salaries and the pensions and the city vehicles, but make them a fleet of vintage Corvettes, Jaguars and Cadillacs with white leather interior, diamond in the back, sunroof top, dig in the scene with the gangsta lean. Let the cars be bad ass. You would hear the old school jams like Patti LaBelle, Anita Baker, and Al Green. You would hear Sweet Honey and the Rock harmonizing on We Who Believe in Freedom Will Not Rest, bumping out the speakers, and they got the booming system. If you up to mischief, 
They will pick you up swiftly in their sweet ride and look at you until you catch shame and look down at your lap. She asks you if you are hungry and you say yes, and of course you are. She got a crown of dreadlocks and on the dashboard, you see brown faces like yours, shea buttered and loved up. And there are no precincts, just love temples that got spaces to meditate and eat delicious food, mangoes, blueberries, nectarines, cornbread, peas and rice, fried plantain, fufu, yams, greens, okra, pecan pie, salad and lemonade, things that make your mouth water and soul arrive. All the hungry bellies know warmth. All the children expect love. The grandmas help you with homework, practice yoga with you, and teach you how to make jambalaya and coconut cake from scratch. When you're sleepy, she will start humming and rub your back while you drift off. A song that you used to have the record of when you were her age. She remembers how it felt like to be you and be young and not know the world that good. Grandma is a sacred child herself who just circled the sun enough times into the ripeness of her cronehood. She wants your life to be sweeter. When you wildin' out because your heart is broke or you don't have what you need, the grandmas take your hand and lead you into their gardens. You can lay down amongst the flowers, her grasses, roses, dahlias, irises, lilies, collards, kale, eggplants, blackberries. She wants, to, she wants you to know that you are safe and protected, universal, limitless, sacred, sensual, divine, and free. Grandma is the original warrior, wild since birth, comfortable and loving fiercely. She has fought so that you don't have to, not in the same ways, at least. So give the police departments to the grandmas. They're fearless, classy, and actualized blossom from love they wear what they want and they say what they please believe that there wouldn't be no noise citations when the grandmas ride through our streets blasting stevie wonder nina simone marvin gay alex coltrane jimi hendrix karis one all that good music the kids get a hula hoop to it and sell her lemonade made from heirloom pink lemons and maple syrup the car is solar powered and carbon footprintless. The grandmas designed the technologies themselves. At night, they park the cars in a circle so all can sit in them with the sun roofs down and look at the stars, talk about astrological signs, what to plant tomorrow based on the moon's mood, and help you memorize Audre Lorde and James Baldwin quotes. She always looks you in the eye and acknowledges the light in you with no hesitation or fear. And grandma loves you fiercely forever. She sees the pain in our bravado, the confusion in our anger, the depth behind our coldness. Grandma knows what oppression has done to our souls and is gonna change it one love temple at a time. She has no fear. So I hope all of y'all are staying safe and knowing that this spark is smoldering bold and bright and is not going anywhere, um, we can achieve a reality where we do not have police policing us, but that we have an abundance of everybody being cared for 
we've already seen our city feed people and house people and give people what they need and it was there the resources were there so let's keep on thinking of how we could not continue to allow capitalistic greed and white supremacy to drain and vampire off of society and that we could truly live an abundant delicious yummy life surrounded in sweet love and abundant sensuous elders and all kinds of freedom and liberation for black people Mwah, i love you all Woo! <laughs> you know i watched this like five times getting ready for this sermon and i'm still having that reaction right so friends let's check in with our bodies how you feeling right What happened for you as you listen to that? Where did you loosen or unclench or lean in? My experience hearing that poem is warmth rising up through my chest and out through my limbs. It's a welling in my throat and a hunger in my belly. It's an inhale of breath and then a long exhale. I find myself leaning in toward the smells and the taste and the sensations of that imaginary world, like a flower tilting its face to the sun. That, my friends, that feeling right there, that is what helps me override that little lizard brain that still, after all these years, sometimes panics when I try to imagine a world without prisons and police. That feeling, is the wellspring that makes me believe as deeply as anything that another world is possible. We gotta access that feeling over and over and over again until we deprogram all those other messages we've received. And we need to do it together, sharpening our understanding and strengthening the muscles of our prophetic imaginations. You've been doing it here at First Universalist, I know as you've engaged in small group abolition circles, as you've been grappling with the racial justice statement that you are about to vote for next week at your congregational meeting. Some of you have done it with us as part of the Sacred Solidarity Abolition Cohort this last year as part of March, Multi-Faith Anti-Racism Change and Healing here in the Twin Cities. And I'll tell you that in my role as the organizing strategy director at the Unitarian Universalist Association, I've seen you use in the past year come together with more openness and commitment and resolve to lean into this radical imagining. Whether it's the hundreds of folks who participated in our Two Side with Love online political education series about abolition this year, or the thousands of you, you thousands of calls that you use around the country made a couple of weeks ago, um, lending muscle to our comrades at UU Justice Arizona as they are working to get the Phoenix City Council to move 5% of their budget away from policing and toward community safety. And maybe most powerfully, I saw it last summer at our virtual General Assembly when a group of ministers and lay leaders presented a resolution called Amen to Uprising a commitment and a call to action. I'm gonna read you a little bit of it right here. It says, whereas our ancient and evolving universalist theologies call us 
to bring an end to all hells that exist and calls for accountability and transformation, not punishment. Therefore, be it resolved that we will create systemic change within our congregations by revising agreements and policies to create alternatives to policing, including developing plans for safety and accountability, choosing not to involve police departments and deactivating security systems that mobilize police response when triggered, engaging in creative transformative justice processes, pursuing abolition of policing systems within the congregations and institutions in which we have power, moving congregational and institutional resources and endowments towards black liberation organizing and long-term redistribution and rooting ourselves in theologies of liberation and abolition. That is a statement, y'all. So if you are not what we like to call a GA junkie, um, each year our 1200 congregations elect delegates who gather to do the business of our association of congregations. And one of the things that delegates do is create what are called actions of immediate witness or AIWs, which are basically statements expressing our shared commitment to take action on the most pressing justice issues of the moment. And I hope you will read this AIW in its entirety, again, in your virtual order of service. And I want you to know it was overwhelmingly affirmed by the several thousand delegates representing congregations from every state. Now, those delegates were absolutely not all abolitionists. Um, so many folks have the same questions and doubts that I know some of you have. And of course, not every congregation went back immediately and shifted every practice and all of the ways that the AIW called for. The truth is, <laughs> that our General Assembly last year voted to affirm, affirm something that Unitarian Universalism is not totally ready for and that our congregations don't actually know how to fully realize yet. But fam, that's the point, right? That is exactly the politics of abolition. That's the, the imaginative project of abolition. The assertion that even though we don't have every single answer, we know enough to know that criminalization and punishment and abandoning of millions of our human siblings is not the world we want. Abolition is a declaration of faith that it is possible to build a freer, more just, more accountable, more loving world and that we have to start right now. Despite what the critics say, abolition is not naive or reckless or starry-eyed. Abolitions know that this positive project is gonna require a massive shifting of resources, specific and hard fought changes to policy, creation of entirely reimagined systems and institutions. It's gonna require strategic long haul grassroots organizing. And it's gonna alter the way that we live our daily lives so that we begin to know our neighbors again, to protect and support each other in real tangible ways. It's gonna ask us to do the hard work of transformative justice, engaging one another when bad things happen and finding ways of restoring trust and repairing harm, not just relocating it out of sight. As Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, abolition requires that we change one thing, everything. And that actually sounds like good news to me because what that means is that Every single one of us has a role to play, and there are a thousand ways to get started right now. 
In the coming year, I know that you are gonna have more opportunities to engage these conversations here at First Universalist. Locally, Reclaim the Block and Black Visions and the Yes for Minneapolis campaign will be organizing hard this year. And they've got lots of ways to get involved. And we at the UUA, at Side with Love, will be offering a lot of ways to learn and reflect and act along with hundreds of Unitarian Universalists across the country. And I would love for you to join us. Mariam Kaba invites us to ask, what can we imagine for ourselves and our world? I would say that this is not only the central question of abolition, but of a faithful, committed, mature, spiritual life. I believe that in the words of Arundhati Roy, another world is possible. And on a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. May we listen together. May we imagine, may we organize, and may we all get free. May it be so. Blessed be Ashe and Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org dot o r g